This is Dr. Jason. In today's episode, we discuss a movie depicting suicide, which can be very distressing. If you need resources or support, go to 988lifeline.org or call the number 988 for free and confidential support in the United States. Please look after yourself. Welcome to Movie House Sports Psychology, the podcast where we look at your favorite movies and TV shows through the lens of mental health and sports psychology. I'm Dr. Jason Von Steetz, a licensed psychologist specializing in clinical and sports psychology. If you're interested in how psychological principles apply to your favorite fictional characters, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Movie House Sports Psychology. Today's guest is a friend of mine who I met not during my grad school experience. I almost said uh, during grad school, but I believe I was a postdoc and she was a, a grad student. And now she is a very competent and very wise clinical psychologist, Taylor Neff. Thank you for joining the podcast today, Taylor. Dr. Taylor. Wow. Dr. Taylor, that is incredibly flattering, Dr. Von Steve. Um, that's right. I right. I was actually thinking about, um, I mean, last time we saw each other in person and how we met, that was the year of COVID, actually, mm-hmm. if you remember. We, we had a good six months. We were working at the same site. Um, mm-hmm. and, then, and then the Fire Nation attacked, and it was COVID. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's been a while. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Good to see you, too. All right. And then today, we are talking about the movie The Lodge from 2019, 2020. Uh, it is 2019. I looked it up. Yeah, 2019. And um, this was a, a new experience for me. I hadn't seen this movie before. I do enjoy a good horror movie or thriller Um I think we could call this movie a horror movie. Um, so it was fun fun for me to watch. Um, I guess fun is kind of a, a strange word to use for this movie, but I did <laughs> – I, I felt uh, tense. I felt um, um, focused. This, this movie really draws your attention and forces you to pay attention very closely. And uh, – I would say I overall I, I didn't enjoy that experience. Uh, what was it about this movie that um, uh, led you to to choose this to talk about today? You know, it's, it's funny that you ask that because I think it's all of those feelings. Um, I am I am a big fan, and similar to you in the way that you know, was it fun to watch? No, but was there something? meaningful about it potentially i mean any movie that can evoke some intense feelings um especially in a genre that people don't necessarily see as being emotionally valuable horror if we're going to call it a horror um that really draws my attention and and, you know this also came out post hereditary so there was kind of a and post get out and there was kind of this resurgence of horror as a genre that could communicate potentially something meaningful. And so at that time, you know, I was really interested in giving anything a shot in the genre. So this stands out to me as kind of a lesser known horror that was coming out around that time. 
Yeah, it did remind me of Hereditary. And Hereditary, maybe, I, I'm tempted to say it's my favorite horror movie, but then at the same time, it's like The Lodge. It is a, a really good movie. Uh, I'm glad I watched it, but maybe not enjoyable. Uh, we're very, 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 very tense, and it feels weird saying it's it's fun or enjoyable to watch. Uh, but um, yeah, there are lots of uh, sort of similarities to the movie Hereditary. Maybe it was an inspiration, or maybe they're just just similar movies. But it is a very, very slow, very quiet, very tense movie. It, it starts off in a very tense way. And then it pretty much remains tense the entire time and until, mm-hmm. until the end. Uh, so if you like that kind of movie, then this, this is definitely uh, one for, for you to watch. Uh, and then let me, let me read the IMDb description of The Lodge before we actually get started talking about it. So here's the description. A soon-to-be stepmom is snowed in with her fiancé's two children at a remote holiday village. Just as relations begin to thaw between the the trio, some strange and frightening events take place. Ooh, so there's a... Spooky. Yeah, very spooky. So there's a soon-to-be stepmom. So just the word stepmom in movies and fairy tales tells you that something's going on with that character. Disney would have us believe that. Isn't that true? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of very normal, healthy, well-functioning step-parents. But according to Disney and according to many movies, as soon as you know someone's a step-parent, that's a little bit of an indication that something's going to happen. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And they're in a snowed-in lodge and something events start to take place okay all right so let's let's get started discussing the movie so the things start off really tense from the very beginning uh i've seen this movie twice i believe you've seen it uh, more than me but what i'm remembering right now at the beginning and you can fill me in if if i miss something in a second um you see maybe a a, a dad and, and two kids and i think he's dropping off children at um at their mother's house he asks and he he drops them off and then he lets the mom know that he's gonna remarry soon sorry sorry about that sorry it's gonna happen uh but it's time it's time to move on and he's gonna get remarried and then he walks out the door and then we the our movie quickly escalates from there but what 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 do you what to and i left out something really important but to tell tell us about the start and tell us like what you as a clinical psychologist and a movie lover sees going on at the very beginning yeah yeah i'll do my best to embody both uh both those parts of me you know it's uh actually yeah i'm, I'm gonna do a you know actually kind of thing here it's it's the mom dropping off the kids at the dad's house. Um, and this only, the, the only reason I feel compelled to clarify this is because, you know, kudos to Alicia Silverstone. But actually one of the things for people of a certain generation that I think watches this movie that might catch people off guard is 
you know, if you know who Alicia Silverstone is, she was in Clueless, right? Like she plays this this valley girl character and she is playing an entirely different character in this movie. I think she is the first person, first character that we see here. Um, and there is, there's immediately a tension. Um, and I think it strikes me that Mia, she is the daughter, the younger of the two kids, she picks up on the fact that her mom is unwell in some way. There's tension. Um, and that I think that's important for what happens later in the movie and being sensitive to children's experiences that even without words, you know, the, the children are picking up on something um, and that it's not verbalized, I think is also really important. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you said it really well. There is there's this unspoken tension that hangs in the air. And then there's this you know, for lack of a better word, a bomb that's dropped that dad says that he is going, he wants to finalize the divorce and he wants to marry this other woman that presumably he's been seeing. And it is intolerable to the mom. She actually walks out. She kind of puts on a smile and walks out and says, that's fine or that's okay. Something like that. Um, and from there, yeah, things, things really escalate. I'm sort of hesitant to sort of go beyond that moment before we consent to yeah. discussing what happens next well you, you have you have my consent uh and uh if someone's listening to this and they haven't watched the movie you probably want to watch the movie first because uh the next scene that happens in this movie is was very surprising i knew it was a horror movie but it just really seemed to to come out of nowhere uh but but uh dr taylor what what happened yeah, you know, I, I think you said something earlier that I, I would emphasize too about how heavy and tense this movie is, that it is certainly not a movie that I would recommend to everyone um, it, in the way that both you and I, um, it, it evoked some pretty strong feelings and pretty strong reactions. And knowing that, you know, the scene that we're alluding to is the mother's suicide. Um, and it is, it's, it's shocking, it's brutal, it's simple, actually, in a lot of ways. And I think you and I might have briefly texted about this before setting up the podcast, but it sets the tone for the rest of the movie, that the stakes are so high um, and the grief is so immense and unexpected that without that scene, it, the rest of the movie would, I, I think, would play entirely differently. The mood would be very different. Um, and as an audience member, I was thinking about this. Again, it's it's shocking. Um, it's unexpected. There's maybe some hints that that something is going to happen, but it just it's so quick. And I, you know, as a movie lover yourself, maybe you can speak to this, but I don't think I've ever seen suicide depicted that way in media. Um, and it brings up kind of reactions that are similar to what many people report if they've touched, come into contact with suicide in some way that, you know, you didn't see it coming. Um right. And, and maybe even as an audience member, you might have formed some feelings about the mom before this scene. And, you know, maybe you feel guilty about those feelings. You didn't know how, how much duress she was under, what was going on, and then, and then this happens. So th those are some of my reactions to it, in addition to the initial shock. And it is shocking every time, uh, for me anyway. Right. It's, it's hard to watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and... Watching it, so I've seen it twice, and uh, watching it the first time, I was just very shocked. Um, partially, because as a, a, just someone watching a movie, I saw an actor that I recognized, 
and thought, oh, okay, she's a character in this movie. We're going to see what happens to her, you know, throughout, uh, you know, this 90 minute or two hour movie. And then, uh, and then it just happens very quickly. She's under distress. She just heard really bad news. And, um, you can see that she's, um, uh, you know, she's shocked and she's sad. And then, uh, the situation escalates very quickly within a matter of minutes, maybe seconds. Uh, it just happens so fast. Watching it the second time, there, there are signs that things aren't, um, uh, you know, aren't aren't going well for her. There's signs that she's not necessarily coping well with what's going on, and that uh, she's putting on a brave face for her children, and and uh, maybe some ways for her ex-husband too, or at least she's uh, not showing the full extent of um, you know how how uh, saddened she is by by the divorce. Uh, so seeing it the second time, there are more signs. But it still does happen uh, very uh, abruptly, and um, uh, working with uh, people who are having suicidal thoughts and attempting suicide is not necessarily something that I do often. During my graduate school training, I, you know, did work with with more people uh, who were. Um, uh, you know, having having those uh, those thoughts and ideations, and then since then, that's not necessarily uh, something that that I've worked with, but uh, in some ways, the, the the movie is depicting what, or or the experience watching that movie is similar to what other people might experience uh, when somebody in their life kills themselves. Uh, they can be shocked. They can look back and wonder were there signs, and they can review it in their mind. And it is very shocking, and and uh, it's like a, a bomb going off that mm. just affects everybody, everybody around it. Um, so the movie is, is very shocking, and and it does. Uh, uh, pr- portray some elements of uh of suicide uh realistically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's right and, and i think specifically as an observer right that you're you're pointing out sort of the replaying and and i wonder you know as people who have watched it multiple times yeah the the increased attention that we pay um because it, it is, it's a really natural longing to try and figure it out, to try and understand, uh, to make sense of something. And that's, that's kind of what the family is left with too, that they are trying to make sense of something that they are frankly ill-equipped, you know, based on the dynamics that we see and developmentally for the kids that they don't have a lot of support to try and make sense of something like suicide, um, which, you know, arguably is results in some of the things that we see later. Um, and I think, yeah, to your point about putting on a brave face, you know, you, you referenced the, some of the similarities with hereditary, not least of which being the dollhouse, right. Um, that there's kind of that symbolism in there and that mom is represented as a doll in many ways. And, and yeah, it's just to see kind of those, those comparisons of, 
living a dull like life um, and that it, it was unsustainable. I mean, she was clearly going through things that were unbearable um, and we saw the, the result of that. Mm-hmm. And then after that uh, part in the movie, and that's this, this is all maybe within the first five minutes or so. This is, yeah, I know we can <laughs> spend forever talking about just this. <laughs> this is very early on in the movie. Uh, then afterwards, similar to Hereditary, you see uh, a funeral, you see people very sad, you see, you, you get a glimpse of the aftermath, just that the, the children are uh, probably depressed. Um, and the father is trying to move things forward. Uh, he's uh, preparing some kind of holiday meal, maybe it was Thanksgiving or something. And, uh, and he's talking about uh, or, or maybe it was just Christmas dinner or something. I don't. But he, they're spending, or maybe it was just a, a family meal together. Either way, they're they're spending time together, and then he's talking about um, his girlfriend and how he wants to make them a part of their lives, and they are are not interested in that. Um, do you have any thoughts about about that that next part? Yeah, yeah. So I, one of the things that I that caught me pretty early on with the kids that was a disconnect between their father and them was that traditions were so important. And we know this in terms of grief and, you know, recognizing loss um, and trying, again, trying to organize a world, which is a huge task for children. The world is big and complex, um, that traditions were really important to them. And you're right, it was, I think it was Thanksgiving that he was introducing the idea that they would spend Christmas with dad's, I think she was fiance at that point. Um, and and I think it's the son who, to the best of his ability, was trying to communicate that he was not okay with that. Um, and that if we think about, you know, what might have been supportive to him at that point would have been a conversation about what do these traditions mean? Um, how do we want to go forward as a family to recognize these activities that we used to do together, not only first with the divorce, and then second with the loss, the the traumatic loss of their mother, having a conversation about how do we process this together? And what does it mean to do traditions differently together? That those were conversations that weren't had. So there's this disconnect, this emotional disconnect that dad, as you pointed out, is trying to kind of reconfigure a family, put some pieces together. And the son, is really just expressing that this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel comforting. Um, And he gets frustrated, angry about it really quickly, which makes sense. You know, he's trying to communicate what he needs and, and it's not happening. Right. Right. Yeah. um, And they do give us a quick note at the bottom of the screen, I think, or maybe in the middle of the screen saying six months later. And, um, as far as we can tell in the movie, there hasn't been a lot of discussion or uh, family therapy or uh, you know therapy for the children or anything like that. Uh, so I, I totally understand the dad wanting to uh, you know make things right in a sense. Want wants to build a family. Want to uh, bring people together. Uh, but then he wasn't putting in the the work to actually make that happen other than let's go do this this thing that that nobody wants to do 
Um, and there's a little bit of an indication that the dad might be a psychologist. Uh, they let us know that the dad is some kind of uh, expert in cults and he's written books on cults. So maybe he is a psychologist. Maybe he's a researcher. Maybe he's just an author. But uh, that we don't really know. But he's supposed to be some kind of of expert. Uh, but he didn't. He didn't. Uh, you know, get the the children the mental health help that that would have just been appropriate at that time. And we sort of get a little bit of a glimpse into his fiance Grace's um, upbringing, and we find out that she was in a cult. And uh, as a child, it was a religious cult, and um, her father was the pastor slash leader of this cult, and um, the um, cult members all died together in some kind of group suicide. And we find out because the kids, after hearing this news about about gonna being kind of being forced to spend the holidays together with with the, his fiance they look her up on the internet and they find this backstory and she was in the news and um and that's that's more of our introduction as the audience to his fiance who they're going to get together with in just in just a bit in the movie that's right and i this relates to to some of the thoughts that maybe we'll get to later if i had to pick a least likable character in this movie, it would be the dad uh, for for a couple reasons. One, sort of, he's he's the adult that's left in this situation, and you know, it would have been so containing, right? To use this term, we need containment. It would have been containing for him to offer his children language to help them process, to give them resources. But in addition to that, this point of how he knows his fiance just gets a visceral reaction out of me because. She may be, you know, if we frame it as him being a psychologist, you know, is she a client? Is she a subject? She's she's something. He studied her and her life in some way. And you and I know that we get drilled into us for a very good reason, that there is an inherent power dynamic in whether it's a therapy relationship or a professor-student relationship or a coach-player relationship or a teacher-student that that when there are these power dynamics, we have to really honor that um, and not abuse that, even if it's not malicious. You know, I, I don't know this this dad character enough to say whether or not it was malicious, but he forms a personal relationship, a romantic relationship with a woman that he knew in this professional way. Um, and that that gets a big red flag from me. You know, we would consider that inappropriate. Um and that's, yeah, Grace is, is painted as a really vulnerable character. Um, and whether she's vulnerable or not, like, that's, a, again, that's a no-no in my book as far as being aware of those relationships. Yeah, in, if this were uh, real life, the dad would definitely be making the, the big mistakes that lay the foundation for most of the things that that go wrong and it's funny hearing you for me hearing you say that he's the least likable character because for me i almost don't see him as a character in the movie he pops in a little bit at the beginning and then he's mostly not 
around and then he's there again at the end. So um, um, it's almost like for me, he's almost like uh, uh, what the kids call uh, NPC, like a non. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 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 but yeah, he's de- he's definitely the one who uh, uh, he's almost like like the like the the earthquake or the storm that then sets the story off. Like he's just like he, he's just there. Things happen, and then uh, and, you know, then the, the the story happens, and and there's a tragedy that takes place. Uh, but also, like that's that that's not a good sign for him as a as a character or as a parent or as a fiance himself, um, you know, he's, he's really making, making some big errors there. Um, or his, his absence is laying the groundwork for so many, so many things. Um, so then, uh, let's see, but now, now that I've gone on that rant, I've sort of forgotten where we were. <laughs> it was a good rant. I'm glad we went down that road. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so then, afterward, I, I guess the, the, our characters go to the lodge, uh, the, the titular lodge. The, and on their way, we see lots and lots of snow, and lots and lots of air, and sky, and not too much else. And that's telling the audience like they're in a isolated, desolate place where um, you know you're. If if anything goes wrong, hopefully nothing goes wrong for our characters. But if anything goes wrong, they're going to have a long way to to get to anybody or any resources because they're going to be so isolated. Um, and then one of the things I, I don't remember if we mentioned it right now, but the the dad takes them to the lodge. He drops them off. He wishes them you know well, and then he leaves. He leaves the lodge to go back home and work for a couple days. So um, who did the holiday planning? I don't know. Um, but that was sort of a, a big flaw there, a fatal flaw. He left and he went to work. And then our three characters, the fiance Grace and the two children are left to their own devices together out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by snow. Mm. Mm, yes, well said. Well said. And yeah, the the planning part really really gets me. And I guess one of the things starting to bring up Grace as a character because we've kind of talked around her a little bit. That there's a scene, you know, the night that the dad is leaving them to their own devices, as you said, and he kind of checks in with her, but it's a superficial check in, seeing if she's comfortable with the situation. And Grace, like, I see her as someone who is trying so hard to show that she can do this, you know, that she is comfortable. And this is after some, you know, subtle scenes of her being noticeably uncomfortable with various religious iconography in the house and the kids saying a little prayer before dinner, which is a running theme throughout the movie, religion in some form. Um, And so she is really trying to convince him, I've got this, I'm okay. Which again, you know, my reaction about like, man, she's implicitly, you know, what pressure she's feeling to prove herself in some way that she can do this. And that that was bothersome too in some way. Yeah. Watching I watched a couple YouTube reaction videos, just kind of random YouTubers react or uh, reviewing this movie. And uh, I think the the couple that I watched uh, referred to her as uh, the movie's villain, uh, 
And I don't feel that way about grace. I, I actually like grace. And um, I, I don't see her as a villain. I see her, uh, I, I, in a lot of ways, I see her as, as uh, a victim or just as much as a victim in this movie as anybody else. Um, but uh, I, I guess. Um, Jason, I think this is our psychologist showing. <laughs> because because I, I committed what to some might be a, a flaw that grammarly didn't make sense. Um, but I looked at the Reddit page <laughs> for this movie, the our movies, and yeah, people people were divided. People were either really hating Grace and seeing her as a villain, or the other half was hating these kids and seeing them as a villain. And I'm with you. I I don't see I don't view it in either of those ways. Um, and as much as I dislike the dad, I've said it for the fifth time, I don't necessarily see him as a villain either. Right. <laughs> right. He, if you view him as a, as a character in this movie, uh, he's, if, if he's a villain, he's more of an unwitting villain. Uh, he's like a lot of, like everybody else in the movie, he's doing his best and he's just making mistake after mistake that ends up, you know, having these big consequences. Um, See, but what do you think? Should we sort of now my memory is getting a little bit more fuzzy because there's so many different little nuanced things that happen that kind of that kind of gradually escalate things and then it just takes off. So do you do you want to discuss the different things that go on or do you want to sort of summarize what happens to our characters? Yeah, I think a, I think a summary might do us good because I'm already I'm already getting excited to talk about some of the themes. And I think you bringing up this idea of is there a villain and if so, who is a is a major talking point with this movie. Um, so yeah, why don't we why don't we summarize a bit and then dive into some of those impressions, sure. interpretations, get a little nerdy with it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So without uh, going into too much detail, uh, so. Our characters are, you know, the fiance Grace and the two kids, uh, Mia and what's the, what's the boy's name? Aiden. Aiden. Okay. Yeah. They're left alone in the in the lodge out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I think there's even a, a snowstorm that comes, or at least the weather is bad enough so that you know they're they're stuck there. Um, and um, uh, Grace starts to notice sort of like eerie things. Things are a little bit off. Um, she feels uncomfortable. Um, and things are kind of slowly escalating from there. And then there, um, there is this moment where she wakes up in, and or she has like a, she has a really scary nightmare uh, she wakes up and then everything has changed in, in the lodge. Decorations are taken down. Their food is gone. All these different things are, are changed. And then she's wondering what happened. Are these kids pranking me? The kids reassure her they're you know, they don't know anything about what's happening. And um, as time goes on, things are getting spookier and scarier and more tense. And then, uh, we find out 
da, 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 da. the kids were pranking her. So things are escalating. She's getting more tense. She's having, um, oh, her medication was taken because everything, everything was taken. So she was on some kind of medication, maybe an antipsychotic, maybe, you know, whatever it was, we don't actually know. Um, but her medication is taken. So she's had more and more time off her meds. And then she finds out that the kids really were pranking her. But by this point, things have escalated so much that uh, she actually believes that she's in some kind of uh, purgatory situation. She believes that her and the children are dead. Um, and then um, she ends up reenacting in some ways the uh, the uh, experience that she had with the cult growing up. And we don't actually know all of the details because it just cuts to black, but we do know that um, uh, the dad ends up coming back, tries to save the children, and then Grace does shoot and kill him thinking that, uh, maybe thinking that he wasn't real or that they were all in, in purgatory together. Um, so it started off as some kind of prank. Uh, the kids were, it was more than a prank. The kids were kind of psychologically torturing her, but it just really went off the rails and, um, and, and escalated far more than the kids had actually planned. So that's sort of a brief summary of, of the rest of the movie. Um, so what, what do you think? Where, where do you want to, to dive into that? First, I mean, great job with that summary. Um, I think I would have gone off on so many rabbit trails on that because you're right. I mean, for anyone listening who's seen the movie, you might be thinking, ah, but he missed this thing or there's this thing and it, there's just so much. So we're, we're doing the best we can to kind of grapple with this and in a way that keeps it a little contained. Um, yeah, I think, uh, gosh, where to start with this? Maybe, maybe with the kids, because we really haven't talked, well, we've talked to some, but not as much as we could about their experience and what might be going on here for them. Because my favorite exercise, I think, with the horror genre is using it as a way to cultivate empathy. And I mean that to, to suggest, right, that horror does not depict things as they are in real life most often. Horror does a really nice job of hyperbolizing things, sometimes through symbolism, whether it's a monster or a supernatural force or something like that to represent horrific, tragic things. This movie, spoiler alert, um, does not have supernatural elements, but I think still involves hyperbole um, in how trauma it, you know, how, how people live with trauma and, and how that impacts decisions and relationships and all of that. So with that in mind, yeah, I, I want I want us to do these characters a bit of justice and see if we can offer some empathy to what's what's going on. And with the kids, yeah, as you said, they their prank, it's it's light lightly put, it's it's intense. They they research what would be um yeah, torturous for Grace. They are they are angry with her. And this is something that stands out to me is that 
as Aiden and Mia um, are feeling frustrated and hurt and lost in, in light of the traumatic loss of their mother, they're also angry, which you know we know is a really common and understandable response to trauma. Um, and, and there's also this wish, right? We need someone or something to be angry at. And for them, with the way that their mother died by suicide, it's really hard to find a target for anger that feels right or that feels realistic. And so they they go to the interloper, which is grace. They are angry at grace. Um, and one of the things that I was appreciating too is that we can sit here and see dad's flaws. We can see, oh gosh, he, he could have done this and that. But as kids, you know, we, for the sake of our survival, have a hard time being angry with our parents. It's kind of a cliche, right? But there's something like we need our parents for care. And so it it becomes really confusing when we also feel angry at them and he's kind of the only parent they have left. So in many ways, it makes sense that Grace is the target of their aggression. Um, and again, this isn't a bad thing. Um, the reference, outdated reference that was coming to my mind was these kids are not the bad seed, right? They're not, they're yeah. not Damien. They're not, um, they're, again, an exaggeration maybe a hyperbole, but a lot of the emotions that are represented are understandable. We can think about them and understand them. Um, so that's something, I mean, I could ramble on, but what do you think? What do you think about these kids and, and the prank itself? Because yeah, some people had some strong reactions like, gosh, these kids are evil. They're psychopaths, they're sadistic. Yeah, yeah, the kids were definitely in a lot of pain. Um which of course makes sense given that they recently lost their mother and um, it doesn't seem like it. I think the, the dad cared you it, in the movie, you see the dad uh, attempting to, to comfort the daughter. Um, so that's, that's the movie's little nod that, Oh, the dad does care. But then other than that, other than giving some comfort, um, uh, you know, the, the, the day that it happened or, or the day of the funeral, uh, you don't see any other signs of therapy, of the dad really sitting and listening to the kids. Um, that you, you don't you don't see really any of their their needs being met. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that the the kids would be very angry and and want to have some kind of outlet or like want to be heard in some way. Um, then I do wonder, not, not to uh, think of the kids as evil, but I, I wonder what their actual intention was because they did take it so far uh, that uh, like it's unclear to me what they were trying to do. I, I guess maybe just scare her off so that she's no longer in the dad's life and then no longer in their life. And then that would be some kind of um, um, sort of emotional victory for them. They're, they're hoping that that would give them some kind of um, healing experience. My guess is that if it did work out the way they wanted and they scared her enough to no longer be in the, the dad's life and in their life, that it ultimately would not have actually been healing for them and would have just been one more trauma, 
one more thing that they're angry and frustrated and um, just feeling distressed about and feeling guilty. They probably would have been ashamed. Uh, so, so even in this best case scenario, it really wasn't going to work out for them. And I suppose that does make sense because they didn't have any guidance or help to understand like, you know, lashing out isn't going to make you feel better. It's not going to bring your mom back. It's not going to bring the family together. It's just going to result in more anger and, and more shame. Um, yeah, I think there were a couple things in the movie that, that to me suggested that they, they really didn't know what they were doing or what they hoped would happen. And there's one, you know, this is me getting a little overly detailed maybe, but in one of these earliest scenes in the movie when the mom is driving the kids to, to drop them off, there's a scene where the two kids, mostly the little girls, is playing with this doll that represents her mom. And Aiden, the little boy, pulls off the doll's arm and it's like, ha, ha, ha. And then so she puts it back and like, oh, it's all better. And Aiden kind of jokes like, oh, what happens if we uh, if we take the head off? You know, something like that. And and in some ways, developmentally, this is where they're at. You know, there's yeah. no sense of consequences. Like they can rip this thing apart and put it back together and it's not a big deal. And on my um, <coughs> fourth watch, <laughs> I have watched it that many times, that really stood out to me. Um, and then, of course, there's a scene later where um, unintentionally, Grace has this dog that uh, has been a part of her healing journey. This mm -hmm. is emphasized. And an unintentional consequence of the kids' pranks is that the dog is left outside in this cold and it dies. Um, mm -hmm. And the girl in particular, Mia, the little girl, she is distraught over this. She is sobbing. She is so sorry. She feels so bad. She didn't mean to leave the door unlocked. And I mean, that it's, it's a pretty blatant example that like they did not mean for there to be permanent murderous yeah. consequences, um, which is sad, right? For all the reasons that you're saying is that this was not thought through, um, that there was just kind of this raw energy, raw emotion that didn't have anywhere else to go. And it was, it was going to end in more trauma no matter what. Yeah. The great catch with the, the doll, um, I did notice that, and that stood out to me that they were taking apart the doll and putting it back together again. Uh, that I didn't—I don't know if I connected the dots on that one, but yeah, it is really interesting to think about that. And Grace, uh, I believe there's a, just like maybe one line or something where uh, the dad mentions that this is—it was Grace's idea at, at the very least for them to get together at the lodge. I don't know how much she planned. I don't know if she planned for the dad to go work for like a week while they're there or anything like that. But she did have the idea of them spending time together, which, um, you know, on its face sounds like a, a really good idea. Like, Hey, let's spend time with kids. Let's give each other gifts. Let's go play in the snow. Let's, uh, let's just get to know each other. And then we can start to, um, you know, build some relationships and and hopefully maybe be a, a family because she's gonna she's gonna be the stepmom uh, fairly soon, and you do see Grace really really trying, and um, she's trying to be patient with two kids who clearly do not like her, 
and um, there's even a very strange um, scene where she's taking a shower, and then the son, who's a, a teenager, he's not an older teenager, but I don't know, maybe he's 14 or 13 or somewhere around there, um, it's kind of like peeking at her, and he wrote a little note on the mirror. I think it said like mom or something. I don't know if you caught that and had any ideas about that, but I, I just thought it was very strange. And, and, uh, and she was, she was very patient. I give her credit. She was very patient with this kid who was perving on her. And she just talked to him like, Hey, do you, do you have uh, something you want to say or talk about? And she was really making an effort. And at least with, Within um, their time at the lodge, I don't think she really did anything to um, lash out at the kids or to um, uh, like anything to like for for them to uh, attack her about. Like she was just trying her best, and then things as the kids are, are pranking her. Uh, the things start to start to escalate. Um, yeah, so I, I pretty I I really uh, felt felt bad for for Grace watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I one of the things that I was noticing this watch too is that when Grace is first introduced, the first several times we technically see her in the movie, she's obscured in some way. You know, we first see just the back of her head as she's leaving the dad's house. And then we see her and the dad having a conversation behind frosted glass. And then I think again, behind some kind of frosted glass. And then she approaches the car and we don't see her face until she gets into the car to then drive to the lodge. And even then she's sort of, she's having to turn around. We kind of see her eyes and the reflection of the rear view mirror or something like that. And I think about even the trailer to this movie, if I'm remembering it correctly, is that she's she's kind of framed as this red herring, that she is the villain, that she is this mysterious woman um, threatening. And in a lot of ways, I think that reflects how the kids are seeing her. You know, they're not seeing her, as we would say, like as a whole person. They're right. seeing her for what she represents to them. Um, and that is understandably, you know, clouded. Uh, influenced by the loss of their mother and this relationship with their father and all of that. Um, And it, yeah, like as an audience, uh, we have to pay attention to some of the factors that suggest that there's more there, that um, there's more than one way to look at her as a character. Um, And yeah, based on, based on Reddit's opinion, you know, not everyone comes to the conclusion that she's a sympathetic character character. And I imagine that has something to do with the intensity of how she responds at the end. Um, yeah. Like, as you said, things escalate. And that is, I mean, even a lighthearted way of saying it, that as she has sort of relapsed in the most extreme, unrealistic way, she begins enacting violence towards herself and towards the children and, and towards the father as he returns. And and understandably, I think an audience's reaction to that is that it's it's unforgivable that she she truly did become the villain and and all of that. And this is uh, one of the thoughts that I was having too is that I see trauma 
as a as a theme throughout the movie, albeit unrealistic. And that is an important point: is that the way that mental health has been depicted in media, we do not have a good history of this. You know, depicting people who suffer from various mental illnesses. And Grace, I think, is an unfortunate victim of that as a character. That yeah, I mean, we can we can see the exaggeration of trauma symptoms in her, but to have to to see trauma depicted in some of those behaviors makes makes survivors of trauma such scary figures. It, right. it makes them sort of seem unstable and violent and aggressive. And that's just like, we don't see that. Um, that's not realistic. And so I, I think that's one thing that I, I wish didn't happen because it does people such a disservice. There's already, even still, so much stigma around mental illness. Um, and And sometimes, yeah, movies like this, even if there was a good intention or something like that, it uh, I think for a lot of people, it can maintain this wariness about mental illness. And that's unfortunate. Right, exactly. Someone uh, having a mental illness um, doesn't mean that they're going to be violent in any way. Uh, someone, if someone's the victim of abuse, that doesn't mean that they're going to be an abuser. Um, you know, in in some ways, it 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 makes for a good story, or it makes for a compelling, interesting story. But in in reality, uh, there's not necessarily a connection um, as far as someone going through a trauma, um, really suffering, um, and then turning into some kind of villainous character that that's, that's a movie thing. And then isn't really a reflection of, of reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought about that. Um, the, one of the best worst examples of that, that comes to my mind is split. If you remember that that came out uh, maybe a few years before this, the M night Shyamalan movie. And it, it, literally the villain is depicted as having some caricature of dissociative identity disorder. So that comes to mind as one of the most egregious examples where um, if you know anything about DID, which used to be sort of colloquially referred to as split personality disorder, it is nothing like that. And even as an audience, you know, we might take in, we might put our critical lenses on and say, oh, I know that's not real life. We, there are some insidious messages that get put in there where people are afraid to interact with people um, based on based on what they're going through. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a soapbox. So maybe maybe for another time. <laughs> so one of the things I like to talk about is just um, you know, recommendations or or uh, if you were uh, working with some of these characters, if you're involved in uh, these characters' lives, what what would you like to do to, to help? Gosh, that is such a, that's such a big question. And, and I want to be mindful too about coming across as too omnipotent here too. Like, oh gosh, we could, we could have done it so much better. We can solve these people. Cause I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, being humble in our profession, right? That we, we are here hopefully to help people and, and we're also not all powerful, but I, I think, yeah, I used the word containment earlier. Um, and I think that is such a big deal, not just for the kids, but for the father and for Grace. Um, and that when unspeakable things happen to us, 
when things that defy our sense of the world and goodness, um, i.e. trauma, like that's kind of what trauma is, right? It's, it's this horrific experiences that defy language. It, it defies our ability to make sense of them. We need, I, I would actually, I would say family members can be helpful, but specifically therapists, you know, they help us put words to things to understand them in a way that allows us to move through, to grieve, and to continue to have a relationship with ourselves, with the world, and with other people that tells us that we we can survive this, that it's not our fault, right? And that there may not, like in the case of suicide, there may not be a clear-cut bad guy. Um, and yet we can still find a way to sort of metabolize these experiences and, and have a meaningful life. Um, so I, yeah, I think the idea about being able to talk about the unspeakable, to understand it, and to yeah come into contact with these emotions that are so so common, the grief, the the confusion, um, the the anger, the rage, um, the the shame, right, the, the self blame, all of that. Like we need safe places, and again, I would highlight therapy. Um, to kind of put the pieces together in our mind. There's something that's so shattering about trauma that our view of of our whole life and ourselves can really be fragmented in response to those experiences. So that's that's a little bit. I'm sure I could say more, but Jason, what are you thinking? <laughs> well, uh, this is the Movie House Sports Psychology Podcast. So I will give my, my one tie-in to sports psychology um, so, uh, the, I, hopefully not a lot of athletes or performers will go through an experience like this where you're in a lodge with you know, a couple other people and uh, you're being pranked slash psychologically tortured. Um, ho- hopefully that won't happen. But uh, one of the things that, that came to mind for me, what, one of the things I hear from lots of athletes, maybe retired athletes or um, uh, people who just have some kind of performance in their life is that uh, a lot of athletes learn these mental skills. They learn sports psychology strategies, and it's really helpful for them in their sport or in whatever area they perform in. But really, these tools are really helpful in their personal life, and they use them long after they retire from their sport or their performance. And one of the the really common um, strategies or or mental skills that I will uh, use with athletes is something from um, a sports psychology professional named Ken Revisa. He passed away a few years ago, but he was uh, a leader in the field of sports psychology and worked a lot with with baseball and softball players and, and lots of other sports too, but mainly baseball and softball. And he had um, uh, an internal traffic light system that he would teach to uh, his athletes. And he would tell them that you can think of athletic performance as like driving a car. When you're driving and, and you, you see a green light, you don't really need to make any adjustments. You don't need to you know, think too much or do too much of an assessment. You just keep driving everything you get a green light so everything's everything's good you just keep going and that's like in your athletic performance 
when things are, are going well, when maybe you're in, in the zone or in a flow state, you don't need to think, you're just, you're just doing, you're just performing, and it's all very easy. Now, when you're driving and you come across a yellow light, that's a little bit different. And Ken would always like to ask people, you know, what, what do you do when you come across a yellow light? So, Dr. Taylor, I'll, I'll ask you right now. When you're driving and you get to a yellow light or you see an upcoming yellow light, what do you do? I slow down. You slow down. Okay. What do other people do? Sometimes they try and gun it. Let's get through before it turns red. <laughs> Absolutely. They gun it. That's a really common answer. And oftentimes when Ken or when, when I'm teaching Ken stuff, uh, an athlete or a performer will say, speed up. And then, and then everybody laughs or they have a lot of fun. But, but it, there's a lot of truth in that. When you see a yellow light and you're driving, a lot of times people will just floor it. And then sometimes you make it and nothing goes wrong. And then other times you get a speeding ticket or you end up cutting somebody off or you almost get into an accident or you do get into an accident. And if you are driving and you come across a red light, you really need to make sure you stop because if you if you gun it, something could really go wrong at that time. So going back to athletic performance, you can think of a yellow light as um, a, like a, a warning sign. You know, when if you're an athlete and you make an error, that could be a yellow light. Or if you are starting to doubt yourself or you're starting to, um, you know, something is, is starting to go a little bit wrong with your performance, that's like a yellow light. And just like when you're driving, and, and someone guns it, a lot of times athletes will notice that something's wrong and then they'll, they'll notice that yellow light and then they'll try really hard or they'll rush to, to get through that uncomfortable moment. And sometimes that works out and then other times it could lead to something bad, just like when you're driving. It could lead to an injury. It could lead to poor performance. It could lead to something going wrong. So... When you see a yellow light, what you need to do, is, if you're driving, assess the situation. Pause for a moment, take a breath, look in your mirrors, look around. If everything is good to go, then, then you can speed up and make it. If it's not, then you need to hit the brakes. So when you're performing and you feel that yellow light coming on, you know maybe there's an error you made or, or something goes wrong, that's when you need to pause and take a breath and sort of recenter yourself before you can, before you can uh, keep competing. Otherwise, something can go wrong. And when I was watching this movie, I saw every character in this movie just gunning it after yellow light, after yellow light, after yellow light, just ignoring all of those yellow lights, all of those big red flags, big, you know, big red lights and still just gunning it, trying their best, trying to make it. And most of these characters crashed. Most of you know, things, um, all of them, all of them crashed. Um, so that, that, that's my, my one tie into sports psychology that when, when you are seeing that something's not right, when you see that you're starting to get in trouble, 
you know, you're at a yellow light. And if you keep going, something really bad is going to happen. So earlier on with these characters, um, you know, Grace was seeing some yellow lights. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what she could have done. But, um, you know, if she would have called for help early, much earlier on, if um, the dad would have noticed the yellow lights when he was just bringing the subject up that maybe they should go to the lodge, if he would have noticed that and then paused for a moment and then said, okay, maybe, you know, maybe another holiday. Let's put this on the, the back burner for just a little bit. If the kids would have noticed that their prank was escalating a little too much and then think, ah, okay, she, she keeps asking us if this is a prank. Maybe we should just tell her, yes, it's a prank and just move on. Um, things could have ended up a lot differently, but that's, that, that's my, my one tie in. Just look out for those yellow lights. I love that tie in. Um, yeah, I, I do not have a background in sports psychology, but I think that that metaphor is so applicable. Like you're saying, not, not just to athletic performance, but to so many areas. Right. And it's, it's a really compassionate way, I think, of viewing the, the struggles and, and everything that the characters went through in the film. So I, that's lovely. I, I'll borrow that one for sure. <laughs> yeah, go right ahead. That is courtesy of Dr. Ken Revisa. You can check out his book, Heads Up Baseball. Uh, if, if anybody wants to tie in sports psychology to the lodge. Uh, it's, this book has been very helpful for uh, baseball and softball players, and now it's helpful for movie watchers too. All right, Dr. Taylor, this was so much fun. I'm glad we are able to uh, to meet up and talk about this movie and uh, hope to have you back someday. And um, um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun for me too. It's a good example of how, you know, we can have the shared experience of something that is really not fun to watch, but as we talk about it together, we make sense of it together and learn a little bit that, Hey, this is, this is actually an opportunity for connection. So I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you about it too. Oh, awesome. Thanks. This has been Movie House Sports Psychology. Find me on Instagram or Twitter using my handle at CBT Sports Psych. And tell me what you think. Thanks for listening. Thank you.